welcome to episode 3 of season 3 of Delving Into Dance. In this season, I'm turning the focus onto the lives of dancers, capturing their diverse experiences. In this episode, I talk with visual dance artist Gareth Chambers, who was in Melbourne for the Yurimboy First Nations Festival at the start of 2017. Gareth is a proud Welshman with a fabulous queer sensibility. His dance is visually stunning and visceral in nature. Think naked body covered with fluids and breakfast cereal or something similar. This was an honest and genuine interview that was a true privilege to conduct. I started by asking, where did dance start? I think dance happened to me in not the sort of usual way. I think as a child I was always interested in music videos and movement in in films. That was and I just like anything that sort of escapes the nine to five sort of reality, like any action you can do which sort of yeah, makes you transcend to a different place. Like before, I remember going out when I was 16 and going to nightclubs and just being fascinated by people who just sort of dance for hours and hours and hours. And I was thinking, why do people do that? And it's because they want to escape their life. They want to escape the nine-to-five boredom of working in a supermarket or in an office. Um, and that's probably one of the main reasons why I went into dance. I went into dance quite late, so I started doing ballet when I was about 17. Because, this is so cliché because I saw Billy Elliot <laughs> and, I, and I related to that film in so many ways because I come from a working class background as well um, a, a town in a place where no one really knew much about dance and ballet and it just appealed to me in so many different ways so I saw that film and I was like right and also I went into ballet because I knew from a young age that I was gay and I thought dance would be the perfect way to meet boys. Um, especially ballet boys, which as a young teenager I was completely fascinated with. <laughs> so, yeah, I started ballet quite young. So I started taking class with a really crazy Russian lady in the basement of the theatre, Irene, um, who used to dance for the Bolshoi. So this was in Swansea, this was in Wales. So Swansea is a very small... Post-industrial town on the coast. So she was the only ballet teacher in that part of town. And, um, yeah, she was mental. She was crazy. But she pushed me because she saw potential. And and those are the moments that sort of remain in my brain are the moments where someone sees potential in you. When someone sees something, you see something in their eyes, you see them seeing your potential um, and she saw potential in me and she pushed me and pushed me and another teacher um, called Catherine Bennett who was one of the main well she was the first dancer to dance for Wayne McGregor in London and she trained at Bally Rambert she's like six foot one super slim and um, hyper extendable and she saw the potential in me as well, and she was like, look, there's this place called Larbin in London, which I think you really love. 
you know, just go for it, go for it. And I went for it and I got, you know, I got in. And that's... And it's so funny as well, I've been thinking about this for for a while now, like the, the ignorance I had prior to going to a dance establishment. So the ignorance in my body, the ignorance in the dance world in general. Like, I turned up at this institute in London and someone was chatting about Moe's Cunningham and they were like, yeah, you know, Cunningham was this amazing guy, did this. And I'm like, not like across from them, just nodding and yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, Moe's Cunningham, yeah, wasn't he great? And then I'm thinking, fuck, who's Moe's Cunningham? Like, <laughs> who's that? <laughs> so like, I had to like, go home and Google it. Um, yeah, because my friend Ellie Kusner, who's this amazing dancer from New York, um, who's, re- like, in New York, they're really big on American modern dance, like Cunningham and Graham and Juilliard and those institutes. And she she was the one that was saying about Miss Cunningham, and I'm just nodding in front of her, like, feigning, um, in, you know, confidence. Like, going, yeah, yeah, oh, wow. Yeah, and I'm just going, right, I need to go home I need to Google these dance makers and I need to go to the library because Larvin had an amazing library and just start picking books out, start reading, start seeing what's going on. And that's what I did. So for a few weeks, I just really immersed myself in dance. Who was the first choreography you came across in your reading where you're like, that speaks to me? Michael Clark. Michael Clark, who to this day is probably... There's a few people who inspire me in so many ways, especially in the dance world. And Michael Clark is up there with the top three. Because, you know, I always think, like, out of all the art forms, dance is probably still one of the most rigid of, of art forms. It's still really... I mean, this, like, I saw something the other day... And this was by, like, two sort of contemporary choreographers, you know, quite young guys. And I was just thinking, these moves were done about 100 years ago by someone like Martha Graham, you know. So it's still really... It's still so rigid. But with Michael Clark, he... Um, he infused it with fashion, with visual art, with music, and moved it. He was moving dance forward by doing that. Obviously, his moves are still classical, because he trained at the Royal, you know, was with Cunningham for a while, and a lot of his dancers are sort of ex-Cunningham dancers. So it's still the sort of same shapes, but the way he um, presented those shapes, it was very fresh and modern, and it was in the 80s in London where, you know, you know, Lee Bowery was going on, you know, um, the Blitz Club, you know, the New Romantics, it was fashionable, London was cool, and you could be a dancer on the dole, um, you know, and survive quite happily. Um, so, yeah, Michael Clark all the way, and he was so fucking beautiful as well when he was younger, like, he's like a fucking supermodel. Not anymore, unfortunately, but that's what drugs do to you. (laughs) (laughs) And his work's not as great as it used to be. Like, I saw one of his pieces a while back, and... Still, like, it's still punky, 
Mm. Like, I think it was to... Is it some David Bowie tracks or something? But, yeah, it's not as, as edgy as it used to be. So you call your work visual dance? Uh-huh. Does that, does that kind of come from that? I think it comes from... I knew whilst at Laban that I was never going to be a great technique dancer. I was never going to be a dancer that was going to be in a company as soon as I finished. And I was going to work, you know, for all these choreographers and... And also, I don't. I feel like I don't have the body for a typical contemporary dancer. Like I'm, just, maybe because I started out late. That I sort of. They say like when you're training in dance, you you you've got to have it before puberty. So when you go through puberty, your body molds um, and becomes becomes made for dance, contemporary dance. And I miss that mark a bit. So I always feel like I was playing catch up. Um, yeah, and because I've because I've, I've got bipolar disorder, so I have to take like three different medications every day, which plays with my memory. So like learning like choreography was never my strong point because I was always on lithium and <laughs> didn't even know where I was. So I knew quite early on that I was never going to be that type of dancer, and because I'm interested in so many different art forms like live art, I'm interested in um, fine art, visual art you know, fashion. Like, you know, it's, you asked me early on, like, what inspired me to go into dance? And another person that inspired me was Alexander McQueen. Like, seeing Kate Moss as a hologram dancing was like, oh my God, like, that's what... I want to be, be like that. Like, like to have... Just something as simple as someone just, just moving in a dress in an ethereal way had such an effect on everybody... Um, that was, I was like, that's what I want to be like. I don't want to be someone just running around and, you know, doing pirouettes. I want to create moments and experiences. Um, That's the thing too, that dance can take place out of traditional dance spaces. Yeah, yeah, of course. In terms of what you're saying about that rigidity around tradition and movement and recreating the wheel. Yeah. You know, there's so many other places where dance can be. Placed. And I think fashion played, like it did play a major role in what I wanted to do with my career. Like I remember seeing a David Lynch advert for Gucci like 10 years ago and the models are sort of dancing this really ethereal way and I was like, that's the dance that interests me. Um, so yeah, I think I call myself a visual dance artist because that's what I like... I just find it so boring when I go to a dance show and there's just one dancer on the stage with some lights in, like, a black costume. I'm like, why? Like, why do you... You know, do you not want to mix it up, include things, you know? Just fuse things together. I mean, that's why I like Michael Clark so much, because he did that. Um, infused it, um, dance with fashion. Um, and... I th- like, I remember, like, being at Laban and, like, s- speaking to other students and I'm like, oh, did you see that exhibition at the Tate Modern last week? And they're like, no. And I'm like, why not? I was thinking in my room, why not? Like, that's just... If you, if you call yourself an artist, a dance artist, and you're not interested in the other art forms, then you're just a stupid fuck in my mind. Why is it that dance is often... And not just dance, all the artistic disciplines are so siloed 
um, and don't necessarily speak across forms? I think because... Yeah, I think because dance, out of all the art forms, no, including music, actually, um, has a prestige. It, people... When people ask you, what do you do, and you say, I'm a dancer, they automatically assume ballet. And through that process, they see you as this romantic sort of artiste, ballet dancer. You know, there's some sort of prestige there, like sort of upper-class-ness about it. Um, And I think people love that. People like that. People like that feeling. So when it becomes... When they start showing work... They um, instead of moving out of their comfort zone, because they they're they're scared that if someone sees work that's a bit edgy, they won't have that that feeling of feeling important. So they want to perpetuate. Um, they want to perpetuate the romanticism of dance. I feel. Mm. And they're scared as well because a lot of these institutions, like, I mean, there are some in Europe that are really forward-thinking and they, they mix um, dance with visual art and fine art and, you know, sound art. But a lot of them, you know, these, these people, these kids, you know, these students, they just come in, they have, four, you know, a few classes a day in ballet or contemporary dance and then they learn a bit about dance history and that's it. They don't think for themselves. They just become trained bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is quite sad. Because when they encounter... Um, when they have their lessons and their lecturers are so... are predominant, predominantly concerned with you know their technique or their body alignment or whatever, that's all they focus on. But I was lucky, I had a really good lecturer called Martin Hargreaves who um, really introduced me to sort of queer theory, uh, queer art, um, camp aesthetics, visual art. And he was giving me these references um, and I wanted to learn from him so I would do my research. You know, he would say, look at this person and I'd you know, go back and you know, read about it and then we'd come back and have a conversation. But some of the students don't have... They don't have these encounters. Mm. So they they don't train themselves how to think. In regards to that queer art, and your work is quite queer in, this, uh-huh. in many senses, what is it about a queer way of working that allows us to reimagine kind of some of these normative approaches to movement or... To, I guess any social issue I think when people are exposed to something like queer dance or queer art it can either trigger two things it can firstly it can make them want to learn more and understand about it or secondly they refuse it because it scares them and I think both reactions can trigger change. Um, and I think... Yeah, I just think... Any 
art which is transgressive will trigger change and the change in people's views. Um, but the reason I got into queer, like queer art, is because and queer dancing is. I knew early on that my body um, was not entirely my own. Even as a young boy, I just knew, you know, just walking down the street, I knew that the way I moved um, interested people. They were either um, they were either angry. Or they were intri- they were intrigued and they wanted to l- l- know more, and um, and as I got older, I liked to play with these two reactions. But yeah, I mean, like I like I remember being eighteen and reading like books by Jude- someone like Judith Butler and just being like, wow, you know, like this is amazing. Like, why didn't why didn't why don't other gay men know, LGBTQ people know about these works? Um, and I've always tried to utilise those theories and put them into practice in a visual way because I think art has the possibility to um, to convey subliminal messages, political subliminal messages. And that's what I like to do in my work. So, like, a lot of my work is primarily concerned with... It's a theorist called Julia Kristeva, do you know her? Mm-hmm. Um, so she wrote a book called The Powers of Horror. Um, and she, she talked about this idea of abject theory. And um, so to be abject is to be outside of society and out of order and structure... And um, gay men can be considered can be considered abject because their actions, you know, anal sex, for for example, is something which is outside heteronormativity. Heteronormative sex is something that's outside. It's been and um, to be abject is also to be pushed away, to be to be pulled or pushed out of. Um, order and structure and that's what gay men um, or you know anyone who is seen outside so like prostitutes transgender people anyone that's been pulled away um, can be seen as objects so I and, and also anything abject is something which is repulsive and disgusting and has this disgusting reaction and um, so a lot of my work Included the disgust or repulsiveness, and I mean it's nothing new. Like abject art, it's been going around for, oh, for years and years and years mm-hmm. and years and years. But um, but it, that that interests me a lot. I find it really interesting at the moment um, that queer is becoming a new norm in some respects in the. 
it's kind of bleeding into the mainstream where people are taking on queer aesthetics or queer ideas, yeah. but not necessarily understanding its origins yeah. and are also using it as a way to conform yeah, yeah, yeah. as opposed to actually understanding yeah, yeah, that yeah. to be queer yeah, yeah. is to sit outside of all these yeah, it's punk. Yeah. It's, it's punk. It's rock and roll punk. And I, I blame RuPaul's Drag Race for that. But I think that's probably another comment conversation <laughs> um but yeah you're right um like for example there's a really great exhibition at Tate Modern now in London by a guy called Tillmans and there are these huge blow up photographs of like guys assholes and I'm just thinking wow when did this happen like when did these type of this type of work be in a place like the Tate Modern and I think it, you're right, there is a um, simulation of queer aesthetics going on now in mainstream culture. Even, even in terms of, I think, the gay community mm-hmm. taking on this queer aesthetic, yeah. but are, are not necessarily understanding where it's coming from or the politics of queer in the sense that they're using it as a way to position themselves as acceptable yeah. as opposed to presenting themselves in a way that challenges these normative yeah. ideas yeah. and using it to be normative yeah. in some respects. Yeah, I mean, like, you go into a nightclub and you'll, you'll see a guy with a, I don't know, Judith Butler T-shirt or something, and a part of him wants to go up to them and ask them what they think about her theories... And if it's controversial, or where do they stand in response to the theories? But I don't want to embarrass them because I probably know they probably don't even know. Or ask them how long it took to read the book. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's talking about Drag Race because there was a, a few episodes ago where one of the characters, Sasha Valor, does an impression of Judith Butler. I don't know if you saw that. Um, because it was like snatch games, so they had to do like celebrity impersonations. And it didn't go down well because it wasn't funny. But that's that's not the point. But like I was thinking, wow, how many gay men across the world? Well, anyone who's watching that program knows who Jude Butler is. Um But I just thought that was really funny. But yeah, like I don't know why queer culture is sort of making its way into the mainstream. I think a part of it's to a drag race and it's to gender expression and fluidity. Mm. And because there's a lot of debate at the moment about transgender issues and because of people like Caitlyn Jenner and... Um, what's the name of the guy that got, like, jailed? Uh, Bradley Manning, but it's uh, Chelsea Manning. Chelsea Manning. Chelsea Manning. So when these sort of people are in the mainstream news for being transgender, it does spark um, up certain conversations about what it is to be queer and to be outside of normativity. But um, but I think the opposite, actually. I, I think gay culture is becoming even more... I don't think it's... I don't, is it not becoming more heteronormative? Like, do you not think it's... A lot of gay men are sort of assimilating 
Oh, I think that's totally the case, but they're also, some of them are doing it while adopting yeah, yeah, yeah. queer aesthetic. Queer aesthetic, yeah. And not understanding the yeah, whole yeah. politic of it. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. about actually fitting in yeah, yeah, yeah. and performing yeah. to each other for Instagram likes or yeah. whatever, but it's, it becomes performative. Oh, I see, so they're, perform- the so they're performing the queer aesthetic rather, rather than, than living it living and it understanding and it. Understanding it. I don't know why that's the case then. I think it's because maybe it's due to things like Instagram and social media that we live in such a visual world. So anything that um, is highly visual and not the norm is interesting Mm. because we're just bombarded with images daily on places like Instagram. So I wonder people are constantly searching the next sort of visual which is outside the norm you know and it's about being watched which kind of oh yeah it's about the gaze we like you know going back to Judith Butler like she talks about how we undo each other yeah our gaze um I just finished writing a a piece actually which was based on 18 interviews with male dancers yeah and many of them talking about the pleasure of being, being watched. watched and inside and outside the dance yeah studio. but in terms of particular i'm talking in here in dance and it's not really recorded or reported particularly around men's experiences but that enjoyment of being watched yeah um and you know there's quotes from um a few of them you know i want them to feel something i want them to desire me um, I imagine looking at me like they want to fuck me. You know, and there's this real pleasure from being watched. Yeah, I mean, that's... I totally relate to that. Like, I love dancing and being desirable. Because maybe because as gay men, we grow up in a society where we're not desired, you know, by, by everyone. We're, you know, we're seen as something dirty uh, and not normal and unnatural. So when we place ourselves in a space where we can become desirable and people want to watch us because of our skills, um, then of course we want those feelings because we haven't had them. You know, like, if you, if, you know, when you... I don't know where you like... So you go to a school and you're, you're a queer kid and all the people want to fuck the rugby, all the football players because of their skills and because those skills have, um, have trained their bodies in a very typical aesthetic way. They're athletic, they're, you know, they're sexy, quotation marks. So when you put yourself in an environment where you train to be a dancer and because of that training your body becomes like theirs and you're in a space where people are watching you because of your skills and because of your talents then it's only natural that you have these feelings I mean like that's probably why I got went into dance really because I wanted people to watch me. I wanted people to confirm my existence, my identity. Is that addictive? Of course. It's addictive in and outside the dance. Like, I'm terrible. Well, I'm not like this anymore, but I used to, like, take dance class 
and there'd be two elements of that dance class that I enjoyed the most. One was dancing and like being in my body and communicating something, communicating an energy and if someone senses that energy and they want to watch me, then um, then that was great. But also it was after the dance class, like being in the change rooms and showers and like, you know, being around other male dancers and the majority of them were gay. So, you know, stuff went on like in the changing rooms because we all wanted the same thing and that was to be watched and desired. Um, and it's funny how you talk about how like these dancers wanted to be watched because like Laban, if you, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of it, but it's all glass. So all the studios are like little glass cubes, basically. So there's hardly any walls. And I remember my first day and I'm taking class and like some really hot guy who's like a few years above me on a different course is like watching my dance class because there's no wall. It's all glass. So like you, it's like a glass um, fishbowl. And I'm just like, fuck. And it made me really anxious and really nervous. But towards the end, I became quite strong because of because of being exposed to like being watched so early on. Mm. There were times that I'd run into the toilets because it was the only place where um, there was no uh, uh, there was just walls, like no one could see you, <laughs> <laughs> no windows, in the no toilet. windows or walls. So I was just like, ah, I can breathe because. As soon as you walk in, you're, like, on. Like, it's, dancers are so... I mean, I can tell a dancer, like, you know, 100 yards down the street, just the way they walk and the way they move. Um, so when you're in an environment like like what Laban was, was, you're on all the time because there's nowhere to hide. You're being watched. Mm-hmm. It's like that prison, you know. There's a, apparently there's a famous prison where it didn't need any bars because it was it was a circle and the prison warden was in the middle of the circle like revolving around on a chair like constantly watching everyone and that's what Marvin was like for me yeah that's surveillance <laughs> yeah constantly being watched in regards to being watched a lot of your work um you're naked in yeah <laughs> so that's like like that's a different level of exposure yeah, yeah. and exposing yeah is that something you find challenging or is that something um, that likewise is addictive. It's addictive because it's not, you know, it's not the norm. So when I do something which is outside the box or outside my comfort zone, you do get an adrenaline rush and it is really addictive. And I started performing like in sex dungeons in like London or in clubs, underground clubs. Like if they were my first initial performance spaces. Like, I performed on... Have you heard of the RVT, the Royal Vauxhall Tavern? Like, I performed on that stage once for Ducky. And that was my perfect dance space. Like, everyone's pissed. Everyone's outside their comfort zone. They've come there for a reason, and that is to escape their boring, mundane nine-to-five lives. So they're already in this heightened state. Um... Yeah, that was my... Yeah, I enjoy performing in spaces. That 
like the performance I did uh, for Human Boy Sai. That was really. I, at times, it felt really problematic because it was a performance space and it was a black box space, and I don't really like those type of places. But um, I I initially started performing naked because two things. One, I always find costume really problematic if you don't have much money. <laughs> because there's nothing worse than going to see something and they're wearing a costume that doesn't really relate to what they're trying to convey. And because probably they don't have much money, it just looks really cheap and nasty. Like, if I had loads of money, then I'd be wearing, like, gorgeous sort of Alexander McQueen couture, but I don't have the money. Um, and also... I wanted to push myself. I wanted to be out because I've had so many body. I've had body issues for years and years and years. So to do something where that's not an issue because to, yeah, to do something which puts me out of my comfort zone and completely and utterly exposed for who I am, then it takes away the. It gives you power and it takes away. Um, it doesn't give anyone an ammunition to unpick you because you're like, well, here I am. Like, is it still challenging? Um, not really, but it is. It when I see put, um, photographs of performances when I'm naked, I do think, oh my god, is that what I look like? Like, maybe I should stop doing this. And I think that's just my own body issues. Um, yeah but no it's never I don't think it's challenging doing it the act of getting naked is not challenging maybe because I just spend so much time in the changing rooms of so many dance uh, dance spaces in London that I just became a bit accustomed accustomed to it Um, but no it's not challenging anymore there's something about that idea of nudity assuming the sexual and it doesn't have to yeah, and I think that's the the thing about nudity because we're not exposed to it every day. We're only exposed to it in either fleeting moments or in moments on TV related to sex scenes yeah, yeah. or in our own sexual practices. Yeah. The naked body is then somewhat oh, it's sexualized. Yeah. yeah, and when you actually strip it back, it's just bits of dangling flesh between someone's legs. Like it's it's the least sexiest thing you think about. Really. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think once... Because there was such... There was a few years ago where, like, nearly every sort of choreographer was doing sort of nude pieces. Um, And the reason for that is because it draws audiences in. Like, dancers have... Through their, you know, their profession, they do have, you know, perfectly sort of tuned bodies. Um, So, like, there was this guy in Laban, actually, who they had to stop him from coming to see the student performances because he would get off, off on it. Like, there was this old, stereotypical old guy. But yeah, it was this, this guy that used to just sit on his own and just watch dance, the students dancing. And it wasn't because he enjoyed dance, because he wanted to see... Flesh. Flesh. Sydney Dance Company, their highest ever selling season, I think, I think still to date, was a season in which they had... Um, naked dancers on their posters. Yeah. 
And there was no, there wasn't even nudity in the show, but it was their highest ever selling show. There's something, there is something about that. There's something that. really strange, but yeah, there's something about that. Like, yeah, there was a, there was an advert the other day for, um, I think it was like ballet, was it the Scottish ballet or something? And like, they had, it was, it was, it was Casablanca. No, it wasn't Casablanca. It was Casanova. And they had, um, the two ballet dancers, the two guys with their tops off wearing like skin tight costume. And I'm thinking they're not doing that to, um, to add something to the show. Like, you know, they're doing it because it will get the gays in and the women, the, you know, the middle-aged women in just, you know? Yeah. I mean, when you say to someone, oh, I'm a dancer, the first thing they say to you is like, have you got a dancer's ass?" Like, have you got a dancer's bum? If you, like, that's in the, I'm talking about in the gay world, like, on Grindr and stuff. It's yeah. like, well, show me your dancer's ass then. Like, it's so, or when you're at a party and they go, oh, you, you're a dancer. And you go, yeah. Oh, do the splits then. Like, it, your body, they project all these things onto your body. Yeah. But, I know friends that don't use dance or when they're crossing um, borders and stuff like that because then the assumption is that there's some sort of erotic dancer or yeah, something yeah, yeah. like that that they are not um there's not a real profession yeah. in that sense um and it's so funny like talking about erotic dancers like i know so many students when they were at larpin who actually went into erotic dance work because it was easy money and it was easy, like, you, you know, you, you dance every day in class for about, you know, six hours a day, so doing three hours on a podium in the evening and you get, like, you know, 800 quid, which is like $1,000 a night, then that's easy money. I did it for about two months. I, this is the first time I've actually publicly announced this, but I did it for two months in a club in London, and, uh, it was easy money, just taking your clothes off and just doing some shapes. Like, you do that anyway. Yeah. Um, and in terms of, what's the difference in terms of setting? Like, one is... One's a, a one, clean... One's created as a space in which yeah, it's yeah. okay to watch yeah, bodies yeah. move. And the other's created as a space in which people are there as voyeurs. Yeah. But we know that that crosses over anyway. Well, yeah, like, space. what's the difference of you being in a club, a nightclub in a gay club, you know, at three in the morning, dancing with your clothes on and you're being watched anyway because you're in a nightclub. Yeah. What's the difference from that and then having your clothes off and being on a podium? The only difference is that you give clothes are off and you're getting paid for it. Yeah. And if you, yeah, could go so many places yeah, with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to try my Welsh though. Okay. Um, can we talk about your work? Uh-huh. Is it, Slight, 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 slight. So, yeah, ice, slight. So, say ice, ice, slight, slight. Getting there. <laughs> anyway, um, so that means milk in English. So, slight means milk in Welsh, but. So that was a work exploring the relationship between the male body and yeah. mother's milk. Yeah. 
What was it that you wanted to say about that? A lot of people come up to me after seeing that performance and they, they've been telling me, like, oh, it reminded me of, like, a night out. Or it reminded me of... This, someone told me it reminded me of the, of the, the mountains in Australia. And I was like, okay, maybe she got that from the serial. But um, with that piece, I wanted to explore the idea of taboo. And again, this idea of object theory of like how anything feminine in society is considered, um, is considered weak or not superior to that of, you know, masculinity. And also a lot in my work, I really, I'm a big believer of using the autobiographical as a cathartic, cathartic, um, process, um, and in that piece, I, because I had a really bad childhood, like, my mum was a major alcoholic, she used to, like, every time she got, it was like Mummy Dearest on acid, like, she used to really, she used to beat us up and everything. Um, and in that piece, I wanted to go back to a state in my life um, that I was in a lot of pain, and I wanted to see what would happen if I revisited that state. And I did it in a performative way for others to watch. Mm. So by others watching it, they're witnessing um, they're witnessing my autobiographical cathartic process, and they're um, they're seeing it, and they're they're almost yeah they're 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 being yeah they're being witnesses to the process, mm. and by witnessing that, it um, gives it power and makes it more believable for me. Um, but that piece is, has been influenced by so many things, like the song Don't Leave Me This Way um, was a huge gay anthem in the 1980s. Mm. It was the HIV anthem. Um, and as a gay man, we, you know, HIV is always on our minds. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. It's like always... It's always there. It's this omnipresent thing that's on our shoulder constantly. You know, keep us in, keeping keeping us in check. I find, um, and obviously now with you know things like PEP and PrEP, you know that's taken away almost some of the the fear. Absolutely, and also undetectability and yeah 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 but still it still looms over us like you know if if you miss your prep pill then you're like you know stressing out um and i don't know about you but i've had so many hiv scares in my life it's like it's almost like when um you know when you've got a, a girlfriend you know, a girl who's a close friend of yours and they talk about pregnancy scares, but we're like, well, we both really scared. Like, we could, I can relate to you almost in a way. But yeah, like, HIV is always on our minds and that's why I use that song because it's, it's I think every, and also every gay man, and not anyone in this world can relate to that song. Hmm. We've all had, we've all been in a situation where, you know, Someone is going to leave us, and um, we don't want them to. And we, it's almost we're begging, we're pleading. 
that's the subtext of that song. Like, even yeah. though it's a disco song and it's upbeat, the subtext is like, don't leave me, I need you. And that's why it was such a gay anthem, because all these men were leaving. They were, you know, they were dying and their friends are saying, don't leave me, don't leave me. <laughs> so that's why that song um, is in that piece, because it's, as a gay man, it, I work with the fact that I am a gay man and I'm a gay dancer. A lot of your work has breakfast cereal in it. Yeah. <laughs> Could say so much about that. But, like, all other fluids and body yeah, items, yeah. uh, food items yeah, and yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. That kind of makes it very visceral and very yeah. real. Yeah, and I like... Again, I like doing things it. out of the... Yeah, I like to create a moment, an, an experience, and this is why I get so f- fucking bored when I go see a dance piece and it's just people throwing shapes... Like, I want to create an experience for people. And, like, I'm a really big fan of an artist called Paul McCarthy. Not McCartney. Paul McCarthy. Because no one seems to know who Paul McCarthy is unless you're outside. Unless you're in the sort of arty world. And he would use, like, mustard and ketchup and food. And he would create this dirty, abject experience. So he does... He was doing things with things that you shouldn't be doing with, you know, with those things. And I remember seeing a really interesting film about 10 years ago, and it was through my friend Catherine Bennett, the dance teacher. She was the one that told me about this film, and it's a Lars von Trier film called The Idiots. I don't know if you've ever seen it. And it's about this group of Swedish, I think they're Swedish young people that go around Sweden, and they pretend to be disabled in public spaces. Wow. And um, they like to play with, how the I mean, how the public reacts to that, and they call it spazzing out, which I'm, I'm sure is not very political, politically correct. Um, but that inspired me, like again, doing things, um, doing things you shouldn't be doing. Mm. That really interests me. I'm interested in your work. Um, let's just say milk. Yeah. Um, being programmed in a First Nations but festival. This is what I've been thinking about ever since. Within the lens yeah. of Australia. Yeah, and I'm just yeah. wondering, yeah, like, this, how is that? How does that frame your work? I don't know. And I'm ever so grateful to be here. And I'm really, again, I'm super grateful. And I can see why Wales should be in a place should be in this space, the First Nations, because Wales, for years and years and years, we, you know, the country has been persecuted by the English. You know, the language was persecuted. You know, there's been instances where towns and villages have been flooded to make way for um, English water supply. Um, Things like that. So these acts of, small acts of persecution and over the years... It's created, um, yeah, it's created a lot of animosity. But saying that, since being here, um, listening to the the stories of the indigenous people of this country and what they went through, I find it really and continue to go and through. continue to go through daily, um, because of their skin colour. I find it really difficult to look people in the eye 
and say to them, I'm just like you because I'm not. I'm white. Um, I am Welsh. And I'm going through the process of converting to Judaism, which again has its own <laughs> political things going on at the moment. But I find it really difficult to look an Aboriginal dancer or performer, no, not just dancer, just an Aboriginal person, Indigenous person, and say, oh, I'm, I'm just like you. Like, I've been persecuted. Because I haven't. I haven't had my children taken away from me because of their skin colour. You know, I haven't been put on, uh, had my land taken away from me. You know, I, I'm just, I'm a white Westerner who's, because of my situation, now I'm very fortunate, almost, um, to have, to have what, to have what I've had in my life. Um, so in regards to that, um, because I mean, those experiences, I think are shared yeah. even with people who grew up in this yeah, country yeah, yeah. and how can we actually reconcile and sit with the fact yeah, that yeah. we are sleeping, living, working, walking. Yeah. On land that has never been ceded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're occupying yeah, yeah. land, we're occupying yeah, yeah. country. Yeah. And whether indirectly or directly, our ancestors yeah. at some point have had some interaction with yeah. that occupation. But how does that, I guess, frame your work being within that festival space? <sighs> I think it frames my work because. I have, as a gay man, as a queer man, I have been persecuted by the straight white man. And the Aboriginal people have been persecuted by the white straight man. So I can make links in that way. And it frames my work uh, in that way. So we, we've both been persecuted by the same type of person or the, the sort of the heteronormative white society. Mm. But still, I find it really problematic because we don't have the same experiences. I've been thinking about it for, for days and days and I'm trying to like make links and frame it and give it some sort of language. But... I just can't. It's just too But maybe hard. that's the point anyway, that none of this should sit comfortably. Yeah. And it should always be sitting within a set of tensions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, identity is complex and ever-changing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, identity is constructed simultaneously. It's constructed within and it's also constructed With outside. Athletes, yeah. Um, Your art's taking you across Europe uh-huh. and now all the way to Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you want to go next? What's next? Um, I would like to go to New York just because I think that's the birthplace. That's the type of dance that initially got me interested in dance. And I'd like to explore that. And New York, as is, is, you know, very similar to London, it's, you know, sort of, there's a lot going on there um, and it's very experimental and I'd just like to see what's going on across the pond. And there's a few choreographers there that I really like, like 
um, John Jaspers. John Jaspers. Yeah. Like he interests me. Um, I am a romantic at heart. Like I'd love to take dance class at the Martha Graham Studios just for because it's retro. Like I really like retro dance, even though my whole work is about pushing dance forward and mixing it up. I still at heart love the old school sort of modern dance yeah. techniques. Um, so I'd love to go to New York and just take dance class at the West Beth Studios, which funnily enough used to be the most Cunningham Studios before it disbanded and then Martha Graham came in straight after, which I think which I find quite funny because there's always those two sort of there wasn't a feud between the two of them because Mask Miss Canoe used to dance for Martha Graham and then he pulled away and did his own stuff. For him to when he unfortunately passed away in two thousand nine, I think. When he and the company I think had like a year or two just to do some farewell tours and then they disbanded. And then for Martha Graham to come in to his old space, I find that quite camp and funny. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd like to go to New York. Um and probably like to explore Europe a bit more. Uh, I'm luckily enough. I've been awarded the Dance Web Scholarship uh, to attend Impulse Dance in Vienna. Five weeks, July in July and August, where they just have loads of performances, workshops, classes, and every year they pick. I think it's. 40 or something. They pick 40 dance makers around the world and they award them with this scholarship uh, and the scholarship consists of like accommodation whilst you're there and free workshops and classes and performances. Um, And luckily, I was luckily enough to be awarded with the scholarship this year. Cool. Yeah. So I'm going to that this year, um, which would be fabulous and it'd be great to see what's going on in Europe and meet people. And also, the like, you know, it sounds really sort of um, a bit weird, but like, I quite like the prestige of having that scholarship. <laughs> Trying, to, I'm going to pull away from performing um, for a while because I don't actually enjoy it as much as I used to. Um, so I'm going to probably go into sort of more dance dramaturgical sort of work. Yeah, cool. And probably choreograph a few bits and bobs. So hopefully when, if I get the funding, so if you listen to this Arts Council Wales, give me the funding for the next piece. Give me the moolah. <laughs> give me the money, for <laughs> sake. Um, I, uh, I'm going to create a piece about the work of Francis Bacon because he's another uh, major inspiration so the piece will be about, um, can I create something inspired about by his portraits? So, and I want to create. I want to create it in. I want this piece to be for, to be performed in um, gallery spaces rather than theatre spaces. Yeah, cool. So that's next on my list. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to find out more about Gareth's work. There are a list of links and episode notes on the website delvingintodance.com. It's a pleasure to know that there are thousands of you out there accessing these conversations about dance. If you wish to help keep the conversations flowing, please donate at delvingintodance.com. 
you might hear a shout out in a very special episode that will be donated by you. You can follow Delving Into Dance on Twitter at Delving Dance. On Facebook, search Delving Into Dance. Thank you for your support and continued interest. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes with dancers Samantha Hines and Joshua Petha, who was also part of the Yurimboy Festival. Until next time, take care. <laughs>